Hey, Mayan, is that you? It is. Wow. It's yeah, been a long the magic time. of the internet. It has been. I although I, I I was saying I feel like I have been like hanging out with you guys. It's just you haven't been hanging out with me. So <laughs> no, and 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 I mean you know I that's 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 uh and of course we are rolling because this is how we roll. But like I mean it's it's uh it's it's one of those things that uh without exaggerating has has been gnawing at me since like forever because you are really responsible for all of this. It's Megan. your fault. And I, <laughs> when the it's your fault come, and I, rem- I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I remember specifically, like even, even as we were joking on the, on the thing that we're going to, that we're going to do this, uh, we're like, oh yeah, we'll have Megan on immediately and we'll talk about the trip and everything and everything and everything. And then like a year and a half more, how long has it been? Well, I was going to have a dinner now, party. So, um, and be, and ah, I still wish to do this at some point. I hope you guys will come because our kitchen, we, you know, the reason I didn't, immediately was that we had just started renovating our kitchen and i was like when the kitchen is done in five months <laughs> yeah. um yeah. I'll, but I'll if have, you i'll recreate the trip and and we can all have dinner at my place and then it took forever and we finished literally like march the last work was done on like march 3rd so <laughs> and then we immediately went into quarantine so. but isn't din- aren't dinner parties what elites do and i mean elites are yes. terrible Except that I don't live in Georgetown, so uh, according to my trolls on Twitter, that doesn't count. It's only the Georgetown cocktail <laughs> parties and Georgetown dinner parties where it becomes problematic. I, I guess we we sort of got the band back together that one time on on, but that was already in the in the height of of yeah. uh, of, of the pandemic on Zoom. I think we had sort of a you know got everyone together. That was what like April or yeah, something April like that. Or May. I, I've, I've lost. Track well, should we remind? Uh, listeners, um, wh- how exactly the, the origin story, they've probably heard this many times before, but th- those of you who are just, uh, joining for the first time, well, it's actually worth noting that we, uh, we've gotten a spike in listenership, um, after the tragic events of last week. I guess people want to hear what we have to say after bad things happen. Or they're um, all huddled in their bunkers and need something to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the origin story very briefly is that we were um, on the back of a bus in Israel, of all places. And no, don't cancel me for going to Israel and breaking boycott. Um, but um, yeah, we were there as part of a group that was looking at a religion and nationalism. And Israel is obviously a good case study for that. So Demir and I were just in the back of the bus, just kind of, you know, talking and going back and forth. And Megan was also, I think, like a seat or two from us. And she heard us pontificating in our very endearing way. And she said, probably, you know, probably correctly, you guys should really just do this, but on a podcast instead of just on the bus. It was more mocking than that. I was like, you two get a podcast. (laughs) I I think was actually. Um, no, I mean, you are, you have to understand my podcast listenership is extremely selective. I get up at around seven in the morning. I get on the treadmill for half an hour to 45 minutes. And it's the only time I listen to podcasts. And so, you know, there's not a lot of space in that, in that, and you guys, every time you have a new podcast out, you go straight to the top. So this is a very, very select group. I, I really wanted to listen to, a podcast and now you've done it i'm like as proud as if i had baked you myself it's really i feel very (laughs) maternal about the whole thing well it's very nice of you to say but um and we should also maybe introduce you properly because um 
Not everyone. Well, I guess most people probably know who you are, but we haven't said your full name yet. So, Demir, they probably do you don't recognize do- my voice on contact. No, <laughs> Demir, do you want to do the honors for our for our dear guest? Well, sure. I mean, it's 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 the great Megan McArdle. Uh, uh, I mean, I, in many ways, needs no introduction. I, Megan, I mean, you 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 <laughs> your, uh, your listeners are very confused right now. They're like, "Who is this Megan McArdle?" No, but who I mean, needs no introduction. But but Megan McArdle, in many ways, I mean, I feel I feel you were. I mean, it's fair to say you were present at the creation of blogging in many yes, ways, right? I, think that I mean, is fair would you? To say. Would you, you? You're you're one of the the OG bloggers. Yes, very OG. I, I started a blog. Um, so I have this weird, my, my colleagues at The Economist in, in the mid 2000s nicknamed me Miss Zitgeist because I had participated up to, up until then in like every stupid trend, um, or every kind of major societal trend of the last 15 years. I had graduated from college, kind of bummed around, ended up in IT just as the big dot com boom was happening. Uh, left that in 1999 and went to business school just in time for the crash, got out, had a job, um, never started that management consulting job because 9-11 happened. The company had, who'd given me an offer shut down. And in the meantime, I had, so in, I should go back a little bit. Uh, in the supreme irony of my life as a libertarian columnist, my father is a lobbyist. And so every time I would read something mean about lobbyists, he would be like, you do know what paid for college, right? Um, I mean, he's retired now, but he was a lobbyist for many years. And so the the industry he lobbied for was the heavy construction industry in the New York City tri-state area. So he had clients who were down, they'd actually just been working on the West Side Highway, and when the buildings came down, they waited till the dust cleared, and then they just picked up their equipment, went across the highway, and started digging through the rubble. So they ended up as one of the four disaster recovery companies down there, and they needed people to do like admin work. And the problem was all these crazy people were trying to get into the site, and so they were it was all referrals, like bring in a friend, whatever. And my father was like, well, I have this daughter who's supposed to start a consulting job, I don't know, months from now? How about her? So I ended up down there. I worked there for a year, and while I was there... Um, I started a blog and, um, so this was 2000, November of 2001 was my first blog post. So yeah, I was really, really, really old guard. And then of course I got caught up in the Iraq war madness, uh, worst intellectual mistake of my life. I was on the pro side. Um, and, uh, eventually in, uh, I got a job at the economist as a journalist, leaving behind my MBA ambitions. And then, uh, that was the, the first start on the road to the Washington post. Wait, were you ever were you ever part of that golden age at the Atlantic? Maybe uh, for some I reason, was, yeah. I, oh yeah, you were you were part of that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was. Um, so this is actually a mildly funny story. So Andrew Sullivan had already been hired by James Bennett, the great James Bennett, who created that golden age. Um, and then and Ross Douthit was working there because David Bradley, who then owned uh, the Atlantic had gone to Harvard and just picked up a lot of bright young people and been like, come work for me, we'll find something for you to do. And Ross was one of the few who had kind of stick stuck around. Um, and so Ross and Raihan Salam uh, arranged a dinner for bloggers. And I was not clear on what this, the purpose of this dinner was. Also, I so I had had a bad breakup and I was only in Washington because I was rotating through the economist's office in order to get away from New York City, where my the long-term relationship had just like kind of spectacularly imploded. And so I didn't know anything about Washington, D.C. And I get invited to this dinner at David Bradley's house. And I have no, no idea about the geography. 
And so I got a taxi. And the taxi driver, I guess, also didn't have any idea about the geography because he dumped me off in what I now think was the Palisades. <laughs> anyway, David Radley lives on, 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 on Massachusetts Avenue on Embassy Row. So I then um, I'm frantically trying to call the people I know because all the bloggers back then, this is 2007, they all knew each other. And so I'm trying to call them and... Of course, they have all turned off their phones because they are at a very important dinner at David Bradley's house. And so finally, I got through to someone at like nearly like an hour late. And also, no one would give me directions. No one would stop. They all thought I was crazy. I'm trudging around. It's snowing. It just got better and better. I ended up in the woods because I didn't know where I was going. Finally, someone gave me a ride to uh, to Massachusetts Avenue. <laughs> I showed up bedraggled, wet covered in snow. And David Bradley, because he is the nicest person in the entire world, takes me into the kitchen where they're eating, makes me tea himself. Anyway, so because I was late, I had not gotten the introductions. And I thought that James Bennett was the IT guy. I don't know why I thought this. (laughs) And I didn't understand what the purpose of the dinner was. And it's me, Ezra Klein, Matt Iglesias, um, Ross, Raihan, and every and Mark Ambender. And everyone mm-hmm. at that dinner except Ezra got a job offer. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know. I mean, it was literally, I just thought I was there to like give them advice on how to do the internet. And, you know, that seemed like fun. So I would, I, I'm, I'm a sherry chatty kind of person. Um, and so, yeah, we all ended up at, at the Atlantic. Uh, Ezra, of course, went to the Washington Post where I now work um, and became legend. Um, mm-hmm. but it was, so that was somewhat funny that the, the kind of the person who ended up being the biggest star was the one who did not, uh, did not come out of that, uh, we, with, or we actually, so you know, I should say, I don't know that Ezra didn't get a job offer. He did not end up working mm-hmm. the for the record, um, <laughs> for the record, but you know, we were all so innocent back then. I mean, that was really a different age and you guys probably, I mean, certainly some of those people were extremely young back then. And I remember there was even, I don't know if it was a term of endearment or maybe some people use it in, in a pejorative sense, but those early bloggers were sometimes called the juice box mafia. Oh, yes. <laughs> Although I, I was older than them and it was funny. I would get like included. They'd had a pre-existing group of friends and I was, you know, I had sort of weirdly arrested the stage of all my friends were getting married. I thought I was getting married, then I wasn't. And so I, ended, I came to Washington, I ended up with friends who were all like six to six years younger than me. I thought you were going to say 16, 16 no, to 20. No, not 16. <laughs> um, but it was, but at that age, you know, in your early 30s, like that's a, a fairly significant life stage difference. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I would get, I would, and so the weird thing is that people still think that I'm younger than I am because they assume that I'm the same age as Matt Iglesias. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they were called the juice boxers by the, um, by the people who dislike And them. for people who don't know, juice boxes are things that children sometimes drink, <laughs> like apple juice or grape juice. And you, you get the straw and you poke the straw in that little thing and then you just like sip it. That's what a juice box is. That, is. Do they not, no longer have these They're things? They're actually very rare. rare. I mean, I'm kind of I joking. think it's now foil things. Like, it's now... Is that right? It's, you remember Capri Sun? It's, I think oh they're all Oh my God, I like Capri Sun. Yeah. <laughs> it takes you back, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I think all oh, yeah, the you know, stuff you, is now like that. Yeah, you, know, you know what's interesting? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Iraq and Pasig. And, I, you know, I, I maybe, maybe that's something that it just triggered me there. It might be an interesting thing to talk about a little bit. Because I think, you know... Um, I, we've been we've been chewing it over a little bit on the on the podcast and even sort of 
uh, off the podcast um, about sort of, I don't know, uh, the responsibility of like calls uh, on, on, on current events, uh, bad calls, getting things right, getting things wrong, and then sort of you know, again, in the in the context of of what's just basically happened in the country, um, I don't know. Can you can you maybe reflect a little bit about that? You know, not not even necessarily about like talk to me a little bit about about what Iraq was like, and then sort of uh, you know writing about it in real time in the sort of format which demands this kind of you know real time reaction, and then you know, Iraq unfolding into what it became and, and what's, I mean, are you, are you feeling any sort of, I don't know if it's a similarity and it's not like you were, you were a Trump booster or anything like that, but oh, do you see any similarities in sort of like what this, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Can you, can you, can yeah, you, I can actually, you, does that make sense uh, at all? Yeah. Uh, in fact, it makes so much sense that there's a great column up on the Washington Post right now on this very topic. Oh, is that right? Um, yeah. Demir, so, you didn't do your homework? <laughs> I didn't. Right. I hate <laughs> writers who ex- who act as if you have naturally read the last thing they wrote are history's greatest monsters. Um, <laughs> no one has time. Um, I'm grateful if my mother reads my stuff, and frankly, she usually doesn't. Um, so I think that that's really right. I think – I want to phrase this pretty carefully. It was good for me to early have been that – badly wrong about something. It was obviously, I wish I had been right about it. I mean, not that if I had been right, we wouldn't have gone to war, but I still wish I had been right about it. Um, but it was a good learning experience. And because subsequently, I have made some calls that were ahead of other people. And I have gotten big stuff right. Um, it's easy when that happens to think I must be a genius. <laughs> Instead, what it taught me is that these things are really hard. Um, I can look back and I can see a lot of the cognitive errors I made. And I think they fall into a couple of categories. And the first is just that, I mean, understand, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Manhattan. I could see on the day I was at my parents' house, I could see the smoke. Um, I knew three people who died in the building. Um, I, one of whom I had dated in college. Um, I tried to go donate blood and I couldn't, right? It was because they were, they were totally overwhelmed and it was sad. This was one of the tragic things of, of 9-11 was that everyone rushed to donate blood and they didn't need it because there, there weren't enough people alive who needed blood. Um, so I was pretty emotional about it. And also just, I think, in a way that is really hard to explain if you weren't, I would say roughly 21 when it happened, there's a big dividing line in people's lives. Um, that for the people who were 21 or over, and I was 28, um, it was like you'd had something ripped from you. And it wasn't that we exactly didn't know fear. I mean, understand that people of my generation grew up really actually afraid and expecting that we might well get vaporized in a nuclear war. That was like a real live fear of my childhood in a way that it is just not a real live fear for people. It was even more a live fear, I think, in the 60s, but it was it was pretty bad in the 80s. Um, and But nonetheless, like America has always been protected by its oceans. And so it, we just felt like it, you wouldn't have an attack on, on U.S. soil unless the entire world was blown up, right? And to be hit that hard and feel that vulnerable on the mainland U.S. had never happened before. And it was 
or hadn't happened since 1814, it was incredibly traumatic. And I think we had this emotional need to feel safe and powerful. And I'm not defending this in any way. I'm just explaining it. This was like a really stupid reason to go invade someone's country. Um, I mean, the second thing is that actually Saddam Hussein was like a really bad guy, like really bad. And so it was true that if you were on the other side, you were saying we should leave this incredibly bad, rotten dictator who is cruel and horrific to his population in place. And it was kind of hard for me to visualize something worse than that. Unfortunately, then I could eventually see something worse than that. Um, and the third thing was that, that Saddam Hussein was acting like he had WMT. And I think that's hard to remember now, right? Is that he actually was, he was, if I looked at him, I was like, this is exactly what I would do if I had weapons of, if I had a nuclear program that I didn't want them to discover. And it turned out that what he didn't want was anyone to know he didn't have a nuclear program or, or so I now infer, right? That it was, he, he felt safer if people thought he had one, even if he didn't. Um, and, but the the main thing was I was not a Middle Eastern dictator. I was a 28-year-old former IT person with an MBA and a clerical job. Why did I think that I understood how his mental processes were working? That was insane, right? Um, and so that was humbling. And I have always since been cognizant of the fact that even when I can't see how I could be wrong, there are all sorts of things I just might not be able to see. Um, and it is, it has humbled me. And in a way that, um, the people who got it right, of course, and like, look, I would say this. So take all that with a grain of salt, but they feel like it was just obvious that they got, they made the obviously correct call and had everyone else just seen what they obviously saw. Um, then they wouldn't have been so stupid. Or that they did see it and they must have had these really nefarious purposes. And I, I think it was actually hard to see at the time. Um, that said, people did. Um, and I think the main thing I took away from that is, is that your desire for vengeance, your desire to feel safe, your desire to feel like I'm going to destroy my enemies and they'll never, ever, ever be able to hit me again. Um, that's, that's not a healthy way to make decisions. And that is something that I see right now a lot. Um, look, I, I was anti anti Trump. I wasn't anti anti Trump. I was just very anti Trump. <laughs> let me, let me, let me rephrase that. I was extremely anti Trump. I loathe Trump, like from the very bottom most fiber of my being. I don't feel that way about his voters, which is a difference between me and a lot of people who just really hate Trump is, my anger is at the man because I think my, my basic feeling is like, look, there's always conspiracy theories out there. There's always angry people out there. There's always people who will do rash, terrible things. You know, you think that your voters are fine, upstanding people who believe everything good that you believe. And often it's not true. Um, I think that that's just a general feature. People are, democracy is difficult. People are difficult to get what we had on Wednesday, it takes a political figure to focus the paranoid people and the angry people. Um, to get that, it took a figure like Trump. And so I blame him. And I blame the leaders who allowed this, encouraged this. But I mostly blame Trump because Trump like created this coalition and then weaponized it against his own party. Um, and to be clear, I still think it was absolutely craven 
and un-American for people to go along with him merely because their voters wanted it. But I do think that, like, ultimately, he has the biggest share of the blame because without him, none of the rest of it would have happened. Um, so- and so, you know, I think um, I think that the the extremes that people are now tempted to go to in order to root out any last vestige of Trumpism, right? That, that I remember that very well from 2001, anything, anything against, you know, if it was for the war on terror, you couldn't speak against it because that meant that you love terrorists. And that is a dangerous place to be in. And I do see that kind of mentality, uh, sort of taking root right now. And, and to some extent I share it. Like I am, it makes me actually just happy to think of Trump like trapped in his office, gibbering to his advisors. Even they are sick of him, unable to get on social media, impotently watching uh, his party impeach him, knowing that he has no way to discipline them. That makes me happy because I have spent four years being angry at him for destroying very good things about this country. Um, and but that's not a that doesn't mean that's the right thing to do for the country. What I want to see because I'm mad. So a, a couple things on this issue of how we assess wrongness or rightness after the fact, something that I've been thinking about more, um, not to go, we discussed this in the last episode, so I won't rehash it for our listeners, but, you know, I've been, you know, attacked a lot, Megan, as you've probably seen for, for getting certain things wrong. <laughs> but I think that when history happens after it happens it seems like it was inevitable and now we're talking we're talking about things as if it had to be this way and there was no alternative history where the capital wouldn't have been stormed but if you actually look at a number of key inflection points along the way it could have turned out differently and and really and there there's so many different ways i mean let's say if the election had turned out differently um, or let's say that um, Mitch McConnell had done something differently, so on and so forth. The specifics aren't the point, but um, I'm reminded of a quote from um, Henry Kissinger, who I really don't like. So let me just make that clear before anyone assumes otherwise. Maybe Demir has a soft spot for him. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but Kissinger once said, the history of things that didn't happen has never been written. And so there are all these counterfactual histories that we could have written, we could have wrote. Anyway, this is just all to say that there's a certain kind of, um, I'm angry that it turned out this way, most of all for the country. I mean, um, because, and we'll get into what makes this coming era so scary. And I'm, I was a little bit more hopeful maybe late last week because I, I thought, oh, maybe this is finally what will, force Republicans to make a clear break with Trump, that this was the last straw. And finally, the Republican Party can be salvaged because I'm one of those odd people who thinks that you need at least two parties in a two party system that actually believe in democracy. And you can't just hope that you destroy the other party and put them in the dustbin of history or whatever. But the more I think about it, um, I'm I, I feel I feel pretty bleak about certain things, and we'll talk about all that. But I just I just it didn't have to be this way, and that's what's so tragic about this moment. I think, or, or one of the things that makes this moment so tragic. So the weird thing for me is that 
what he did is basically this sort of thing I thought he would do. I never thought it was a coup. I don't, I still don't think this was an attempted coup. I don't think there was American institutions. The military was never going to get involved and hand him office. The judiciary was never going to get involved and hand him office. Um, and that rabble of what a thousand people, a few hundred people, I don't know what exactly what the numbers are. They were never going to hand him office either. Um, it's plenty bad enough without being a coup. And so like, I've had all these people interrogating me, like, are you, do you regret now saying that he wasn't going to do X, Y, and Z? Like he didn't do X, Y, and Z. He did this, the bad thing I've been expecting all along, which is that he attacked the integrity of American democratic institutions and did incalculable damage to them. And that was what I was expecting. Um, and unfortunately that's what he delivered. I think it's reparable, though. I don't think it's necessarily too late. I'm not sure that the Republican Party, I'm, for example, I'm not, I think it's a long haul to get the Senate to remove him, but I don't think it's impossible. I think there are some signals that maybe it's not impossible that, you know, if the Democrats put on a trial and more stuff comes out, as Liz Cheney's kind of hinting might be out there, um, I don't think it's impossible that they will repudiate him because I think everyone on this podcast probably agrees that he, 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 that was incitement to riot, whether it meets the legal standard or not. He assembled that mob and he pointed it towards Congress in an attempt to overturn an election he lost because he's too big a loser to even admit that he lost. You know, so, there, you know, there, there's, I just want to get at one thing before we lose it, because it's, it, it struck me also in, 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 when you were sort of talking about yourself in the early period and, and sort of watching 9-11 happen. It's something that I, I'm sort of struggling to write up right now. But it's, you know, the it the parallel is really strong there about that. I mean, you you put it in terms of this sort of uh, vulnerability and and that feeling of of uh how could this happen? That was that was really sort of in the air then. You know, and and that's that's it's it's the same thing happening now. You know, I mean it's 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 just I mean first those images were 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 just incredible. I mean, again, I was watching it in Croatia, like following on Twitter, like loading up video clips. I wasn't watching the the sort of CNN coverage of it, but just sort of in real time, just glued to it, you know. And 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 the feeling I had was just a sort of overwhelming feeling of like, no, like no, absolutely not, not 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 there, not like that. But in a way, you know, there's a there's a kind of the the way I'm sort of like trying to scribble at it right now is that 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 you know there. You know, I think Frank Fukuyama gets like a bad rep for the end of history. I think most people who sort of mock him on that never really read the book. But at the same time, there is something about the end of history thesis that seeped into everything about America. And in many ways, 9-11 was the first blow against it, right? I mean, everyone made the the comments about that, like history comes back with a vengeance, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, there's something else here that it's like this – what this struck at, I think, and I think this is why it's so hard for – for for us Americans to really wrap our heads around why why I've sort of described it as like I, I feel like the the body politics has gotten like a like a really hard body blow and we don't really know that we've got hemorrhaging going on right now but it's it's this it's this feeling that that like like not 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 in our democracy like not like this 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 doesn't happen we don't we don't have it's not a coup I agree with you but we don't have these sorts of things happen we don't have and 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 that that offense. I mean, it's a sense of offense. It's in a sense of disbelief. It's an it's an inability to wrap our heads around. Well, I agree with you. I think it's leading us to a kind of political moment that is, um, 
kind of unfortunate. But so let me then just ask you one question, though, Megan, and this is this is, you know, all that is a prelude to the question. You, you, you said that that it's it's um, you blame him and clearly, yes, but it's for me, I and I always sort of keep falling back on this is is I, I, I'm still convinced that he is so much a symptom. When we had Andrew, when we did a podcast with Andrew Sullivan, he he was saying, well, he could be both a, you know, an accelerant and a symptom. I, I clearly, I, I grant that, and he is both. But I, 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 I worry about the fact that like what this event and the complexities that led us to it and all the contingencies that Shadi was sort of gesturing to as well that, that led us to it and all the symbolism and all the rest of this has just like turned the screw on, on everything that's been going shitty for us all this time and has turned it really hard. And I feel like that twist is going to leave a really deep scar. I can't, I can't shake that feeling that like something, something, you said it's reparable and 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 the party might be able to do it, but I, I feel like it's doing something psychic to the country that feels like really, really bad to me. So I think that's correct. But I mean, I think you look at American history, you know, it's not really by historical standards, it's not that long ago that we had a civil war that killed like 2% of our population. Right? And that if you look at the 19th century, that's just a scar that is laced across not just the 19th century, but the early 20th century, right? And I've been thinking about this more as I get into my late 40s, the ways in which we're kind of a bridge to time. Um, that, you know, for me, the 40s feel weirdly present, even though I was not present in them, because people I grew up with had been and remembered them and talked about them in the same way that like Margaret Mitchell, right? gets into this lost cause ideology in the 1930s, not as you wrote gone with the wind for those who are not aware, not because, um, although she's actually more in tension with it than she often gets credit for, but her books are still hideously racist and hard to read for a modern American. But, um, but at the same time, if, if you do read it, you'll see that what she's doing is like, she's heard all of these stories from her parents and grandparents, and she is, she's writing them down and presenting that the, in the 1930s, the Civil War is extremely present for her, and but it's also extremely present in the North. And so, yes, I think that this is a moment that is going to be with us for a long time. It is not going to heal instantly. But that was also true of 9-11. I mean, 9-11, in some ways, is still very much with us. But it doesn't feel... It's not with us every day, right? It's kind of like someone died... It's like, it's like we got orphaned, right? Or we, one of our parents died and you never, you don't, you never don't miss them, but there's the early phase where it's just constant and it's all you can think about. And then there's the late phase where you're sad and you remember, but you've also built something after that. And so I would argue that many of the things we built after 9-11 were not good, but you know, it's a, America is a process like any country, right? It's, it's, it's not a a done project. And so I think that, yeah, this is a dark time. I I do not disagree with you about that. Um, But I do think that like in the immediate term, it's not impossible to me that the Republican party could actually get its act together 
not in the House so much, but in the Senate to repudiate him. The fact that this many House members, seven, when I last saw, this is the after we should say this is the afternoon of the impeachment. So yeah, yeah. Um, we're, I'll, 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 I'll hasten to get this up as quickly as possible because I know it's going to get yeah. overtaken by events soon. So, um, yeah. So I don't think it's impossible, I, I, but I do think it's absolutely it is going to be a scar. This is something that has never happened in America. And part of the scar is that there is always going to be people who just will never believe that something bad was done or that something more than just like some fringy dudes. Right. And this is something that I have been struggling to communicate for four years because the distrust of the media, not entirely without reason is so deep among uh, conservative readers is that I keep saying like, no, he really is doing this crazy stuff that no one's done before. And they're like, but that's just coming from the mainstream media. So, you know, I don't believe you. It's just all a bunch of lies. And like, I don't know. I don't, he's, his, his caucus, his own Republican caucus in the house are not standing up to him because they are afraid of being killed or having their families killed, right? Well, I don't believe that that was, you know, it's anonymous sources. Yes, because they're afraid of having their families killed, you dolt. Like, it's just, you can't, um, it's really, it's really difficult to, to get through. But at the same time, I'm sympathetic to why they don't trust us. Like, we are very, 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 very left wing and uh, compared to them, and we don't play it straight down the middle. And so. Megan, you gestured at the, um, and you also allude to this in in your recent columns, this distinction between Trump, the figure, and his supporters. And I'm someone who, over the last few years, I've really been outspoken about the need to not pe- uh, penalize voters for voting in the wrong way, that the bedrock of any democracy is to say people have the right to make the wrong choice and people have the right to vote for very bad characters as long as they do so within the law and the Constitution, so on and so forth. Also, there's a lot of them in our country, people who voted for Donald Trump. So it would also be there'd be some very problematic implications if we assume that every single person who voted for Trump is um, a racist or a bigot. And that was the case that many in the mainstream media were making right when he was elected. So that's sort of where I'm where I'm coming from, as you know. But what I find a little bit scary about my own feelings in this moment is I've always tried to resist the punitive temptation, the temptation to punish those who do who do wrong. Um, So but for the first time, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm indulging in this desire to punish. So for example, in normal times, I would be very uncomfortable with Twitter's decision to purge, uh, Trump, but also just more broadly, um, cause I think tr- Trump is an easier case to make that, you know, he's just so uniquely and powerfully poisonous as the president of our country. But the broader, quote unquote, purges of people who may not be as obviously bad as Trump himself, but have supported him in the past, or um, the the kind of um, concerted decision on the part of various technology companies to make it very hard for uh, for a parlay, um, <laughs> I always laugh. Is it parlay laugh. or is it parlor? <laughs> I don't actually know. I've never pronounced it. No, because I I made a joke in the last episode, and I did it with like, a, like a the I equivalent heard. of a 
Oh, you heard that? Yeah, I listened so to I, it. Yes, I listened to it yesterday when I was on the treadmill. Yeah, so a French friend of mine. I won't. I won't say who it is because he's a listener and a and a friend of ours. And I. I just. I. I tricked him into believing that I was playing it straight. But basically, he's like, "Shaddy, come on, you know that it's not really a French app." And I was just like, oh, "I got you, man." Obviously, you know. Anyway, <laughs> but um, apparently, the app is from uh, someone in Nevada. I think it's definitely an American app, as far as I can yeah. tell. I haven't done a lot of research on it, so. Uh, <laughs> But so, you know, Parlay, um, and apparently it is actually called Parlay. Huh. That is not a joke. No? Good to know. Because um, Parlay, there's a word in English, the Parlay, when you parlay something to another person. Uh, anyway, that's let's not get into all that. But, <laughs> but um, it's spelled differently. That's the weird thing. Yeah, Parley. It's what it yeah. is. It's in the Westerns, right? You go, you do Parley with the enemy. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So, but I would, all of this would make me really nervous that technology companies have this level of power to write, to constrain speech or to regulate speech. And maybe it's not so bad now. And I think it's, it was absolutely necessary to take Trump off of Twitter, but it's not something that I think any of us should celebrate because I don't know where this leads us. And we should be nervous, but there's also a part of me that wants to say, let us punish the Republican Party. Let's punish these Congress people who have stuck with Trump until the very end or until very recently. So when I see corporations saying that they're not going to support any Republican who supported decertification before January 6th. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. These people deserve it. Let's punish them. This is where we draw the line and we go as hard as we possibly can. And that is so contrary to what my instinct normally has been. And I, I think what it should be. And I, I see that happening to me and it makes me nervous because if that's what I feel, can you imagine what the normal center-left Democrats and and commentators feel because they've been calling for punishment really since day one of really seeing Trump supporters as irredeemables, quite literally irredeemable. Yeah, there's a uh, a friend of mine who has six kids. Um, well, I guess I can name him. I don't think he'd be like sad that I revealed this deep, dark secret. Uh, Tim Carney of the Washington Examiner um, once told me, never make it hard to be good. That's like the big parenting rule he learned is like your kid does something wrong and you, and then they, you punish them and they come back and they're like, I'm sorry. And your temptation is to still be mad because it was really annoying and you have to like make it easy for them to apologize even when you're really not feeling it. Um, and I think generally that's a good rule for politics. I sort of make an exception for Donald Trump because I just don't think he is really capable of learning. I mean, look, as a kind of religious statement, I do. I believe every human being is redeemable and, and can be, uh, and can change, but he is testing my faith, um, a lot. Uh, but for other people, I do think, it's better for the country in the long term not to let it go. I think Trump should be impeached and removed. I think that Cruz and Hawley, among others, should really pay a political penalty for what they did. It was, it was, I don't want to say treason. It's probably not the, the legal definition. It was, it was deeply un-American and a betrayal of both their country and their oath of office. Um, but for the kind of ordinary rank and file people who were, who just didn't oppose it, yeah, I'm mad, but at the same time, we have to live with them. There's a lot of them. There's 74 million of them. They're not going away. And this is something that 
I've noticed a lot going back to our Israel trip. I think I said this at some point, but, um, you know, I've spent enough time with both Palestinian activists and with, um, you know, Zionists, pretty, pretty hardcore Zionists that you have these conversations where you're like, so what's, how do you think this ends? How does you think your idea of what's going to happen ends? And it, it, it became clear to me that in, for a whole lot of people, like, there's just this unspoken step where, like, you wake up one morning and the other side's not there. Like, we didn't kill them. They're just, I don't know. They all moved to Florida. And that that is a necessary part for what their vision of, of how the world should actually look, right? Um, and they never say it. And that, that America is getting that same thing, where both sides just have this weird fantasy where, like, one day they're going to wake up. And that's what like QAnon ultimately is, right? It's like one day you're going to wake up and like President Trump and his secret band of people will have taken care of all of the people who disagree with you. And then they won't be able to disagree with you anymore. But it's a much broader phenomenon. The Q people are particularly crazy, but it's a really broad phenomenon of just like one day I will wake up and I won't have to deal with the fact that there's like 150 million people who live in this country who just fundamentally disagree with me about really, really, really important stuff. But I think there are folks on the left in the U.S. who are explicit about what that additional step entails. And I think it's actually not like super sinister. It's mostly legal. I think it's very problematic. But from their standpoint, um, they say, well, um, you know, I don't know how electoral college gets undone, but theoretically, um, we have popular elections for president and um, Democrats gain um gain support over time because of the changing demographics of the country. And then it becomes just very difficult for Republicans to win. This wouldn't happen immediately, but let's say in 10 or 15 years when the presumption is these demographic changes will have played out. Of course, we found out that a growing number of Hispanics, black men, and also oddly enough, Muslims went for Donald Trump in this most recent election. But putting that aside, that was their assumption that history was on their side and it would move in this direction and they could just gain um, demographic superiority, certainly on the national level, but also over time they would make inroads into previously Republican-dominated states. That's already happened to some extent in Georgia, but they assume that in 10 or 15 years they'll be able to win Texas, so on and so forth. And then, of course, um the center left will continue to have dominance over the media, over technology companies, over arts, film, pretty much cultural power. So cultural power, cultural hegemony plus political power means that Republicans can basically be pummeled for the foreseeable future and they will just have to live under a situation where they're constantly pummeled legally. We're not talking about. I know, I know, but that that to. But I don't. I don't think it's. But it's not bonkers in the sense that it's something I hear very and I see very often from fairly mainstream commentators. Um, So that's just one thing I would say. The other thing, but but the fantasy about that, I would say, right, is that okay? So you've gotten like, you've gotten your narrow demographic victory, right? So now you can run the country by, you know, some whatever five million votes. But there's another 75 million out there that didn't vote for you, right? 
So you've got that, they're still there. And that's what I'm saying is the fantasy. The fantasy is that like the minute you achieve that, then they just have to give up and go away, which is, of course, I mean, you see this in, in, in Israel-Palestine to go back to that, right? Is that both sides had a fantasy about demographically, they were going to overwhelm the other side, and then they could have a one state solution because they would just always be able to outvote the other side. Um, Northern Ireland is where my family is from. That's the same thing, right? Each side thought and indeed, you can get away with it for a long time, as the Protestants did, but it's very unstable and very unpleasant to live in a society where one group is doing that to another large group. And are we really willing to go down that path of of basically functionally denying large groups of people access to either economic power or the ballot box? Well, we, we haven't had these kinds of, like, that. that the, the divisions haven't amounted to what Northern Ireland had or what the Balkans had no, or what, what, right. I mean, and that's, that's the, that's the main change here. And, you know, it's both the lie of what, what Shadi was sort of alluding to earlier, this idea that, you know, uh, demography is destiny and these things aren't shifting. We already saw them shift before this last thing. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the other part that, that, that strikes me and why I think we're, we're having a lot of trouble really realizing how bad off potentially we are. You know, again, I feel like I hear you guys talking about this, um, you know, these two sides. And, and I mean, I don't know where where that conversation would have gone, but it still feels like to me like it's it's a it's a couple of degrees off from like exactly how bad things are, because here's the other part. You know, I, it's it's what's striking to me is that 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 again, the, the symbolism of what happened, uh, whatever, a week, week, I guess exactly a week ago now, um, it, it struck at this. It, it, it struck at the symbolism of democracy in a lot of ways. Like visually, it was incredibly striking to see to see Congress overrun like that. And and in that way, I think it also was sort of it, it struck at that sort of American exceptionalism idea that we are in some ways, you know, representative of democracy functioning. You know, one of the oldest and 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 um, and so what 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 strikes me is that you know part of the the sort of folk understanding self understanding of america is that we are ultimately what defines us is that we are democratic but yet you know when you guys are talking right now about these these factions and we're talking about you know republicans as a block and being this block as a unified thing being ostracized and and put down and and you know contained and 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 marginalized and driven out of politics um it's 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 it points to the fact that that you know the identity of democracy itself is 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 not strong enough to keep a country together. Do you know what I'm getting at? Is like basically by by thinking that like Republicans are against democracy and therefore are somehow un-American, which is I think is part of the logic of of what a lot of this stuff after last Wednesday is going towards. It's it also points to I think the erosion of a common idea of Americanness, which is what we're witnessing, which we're bearing witness to. That's kind of a convoluted way when I'm sort of trying to get at it sort of like weaves into and out of itself. But does that make sense kind of that like that, that this myth of Americans as Democrats is undermining our ability to see exactly what's wrong at the same time? Yeah. Well, so on that, I would just say that it's not as it's not asking a lot for, for people to be Democrats in the minimalist sense. And this is where I've always argued that it, it can be too much to ask all Americans to be classical liberals. And there has to be some room for people 
to experiment with illiberal ideas, again, as long as they do so within the law. Where I find this to be very frightening is that we're not asking a lot, or at least people like me aren't asking a lot. We're just saying there's only one thing that you as an American have to come to terms with, and that's the respect for democratic outcomes, even those that aren't to your liking. And that's why I feel a sense of foreboding that I hadn't felt previously because there was there wasn't a lot of evidence to suggest that tens of millions of Americans were not small D Democrats. Sir, but but Shani, that's and sorry, you know, Megan, I, I, just to, I'll get you in a second. But this is exactly to me is is, is gets at the point is that like d- democratic minimalism requires a, a national unity to function. It's it's absolutely false that you can take people that sh- that feel like they share nothing and impose democratic minimalism on them. I feel like that's actually the point that that's actually coming apart right now. And I think as Americans, we think that democracy and a commitment to democracy is the bedrock of American identity. And the fact that American identity is has somehow broken in some way. Maybe not fatally. Maybe it's reparable. Maybe it's just a, a flesh wound. But the fact that that's broken right now, I think, is is putting a lie to this fact that you that 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 the main thing that binds us together and the one thing that can bind us together is this commitment to democracy. I think if you don't have a commitment to a shared um, sense of destiny as a nation, as a sense of of community, a sense of we against the world, forget your democracy. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I would, I would say a couple of things about this. I mean, one is that I think one big problem you have is that the weird thing is if you go abroad, you know that Americans, in fact, share a lot and have a lot of common things that they don't have in common with other people. Um, but most Americans don't go abroad, so they don't know this. Right? If you live abroad, you, you, even no matter how ecumenical and cosmopolitan you felt, you feel American pretty fast. Or at least I do. I mean, maybe this doesn't happen to you guys because you really are so wonderful and cosmopolitan in a way that I am not. But <laughs> you're going to get us killed, Megan. <laughs> no, very, very um, quick aside right here. As, um, as quote unquote cosmopolitan as I supposedly am, and I have lived in, a few different countries in my adult life, I found that in each of those countries, I naturally gravitated towards other Americans in a way that I never saw with other expat communities. So the um, the Swedes didn't necessarily try to hang out with other Swedes. Um, not that there were a lot of them. I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, there's only three of them, and they're all really <laughs> depressed. So. But I was really <laughs> struck by, for example, when I was living in Qatar, um, the Germans didn't want to hang out with other Germans and um, the Brits didn't necessarily have a strong desire to be around the other Brits. Um, I could probably say the same for the French. Um, and actually, most European expat communities, obviously, this is an overgeneralization. But what I what I found is that Americans, even though we were quite different, we were looking for each other when we were living abroad. Anyway, that's just my little aside. Yeah, we have a lot of shared kind of not just tastes, but like cultural things that are as dumb as how much personal space we like, which is way more than most people. Most Americans feel very uncomfortable with how close people in other countries want to stand to them. <laughs> um, but also, you know, big things like I, I remember being in um, in Britain in 2005 and just being and trying to explain to colleagues just a whole bunch of things 
about things like why we were so committed to free speech in ways that Europeans find horrible. Um, why, you know, just all of these, these different things that are just so fundamental to kind of at least my educated class Americanism that it was, I couldn't even understand why I was answering the question. Things like watching a television show with my colleagues and having a host ask, you know, do you think a non-Christian could ever hold higher office in America? I was like, I don't know. Why don't you ask Senator Lieberman? Like, it's a totally crazy question. And it was, right, all of these weird things that they don't know about you. Um, they grate on you after a while. And the way that the, the people at the NHS would always be like, well, you're really lucky you're here. You couldn't get this treated in America. I bet it would be too expensive. It's like, no, we treat strep there too. Like, it's just <laughs> totally. But so that's one thing is that I think we do have more in common than we think. And I wish that, but the things that we're emphasizing are completely different things to like about America. Right. Is that the left emphasizes liking immigration or, you know, labor law changes or whatever. And the right is emphasizing this kind of manifest destiny, like, you know, pioneer spirit and all the rest of it. Um, we're closer on that stuff than we think we are, but the, the, the way it's politicized makes it hard to express that shared identity. And it's, I think, a real problem that educational districts are teaching basically completely different stuff depending on where you are. So I mean, it used to be true of the Civil War in the South versus the rest of the country, but it's now true of just a lot of stuff. Um, the second thing is I think that this is structural um, and it is, there are these longstanding trends. I mean, I go back to Stacey Abrams refusing to concede an election that she lost that wasn't stolen from her. There's no evidence that, that, that voter suppression made her margin of vote um, and that people coddled that and that Democrats have coddled in not saying that this is the same thing, by the way. I mean, the, mor morally, they are not equivalent. What Trump and the Republicans have done is so much worse than any of this. But it's in the same continuum. And we should have stopped it a lot earlier on the continuum. It should have been, there's this concept in Jewish law called building a wall around the Torah, which is why the actual commandment is don't boil a kid in the milk of its mother. And you end up with, you may not eat meat and cheese, either two or four hours, depending on which version of kashrut you're following. Um, within two or four hours of each other, just in case, just in case like that milk happened to come from the actual mother, right? Of the, um, and so we're, we're not, we're tearing down those walls for kind of political convenience. And that's bad. Um, and Trump just turned that up to 11 because he is a uniquely amoral and terrible human being um, who is willing to do stuff that even, you know, if you could imagine, say, like a Ron Paul filling his role, Right. Ron Paul wouldn't have done that stuff. Ron Paul would have done a bunch of I, I made fun of Ron Paul a lot during his presidential run and so forth, but he wouldn't have done that. Right. He actually was was quite morally committed to a constitutional idea of America. He wouldn't have done the stuff Trump did. So you could have imagined a different outcome. Um, and that's why I think the leader does matter and that getting rid of the leader can help. And the fourth thing I would I would say is, though, is that we should except some possibility that a lot of the stuff we're seeing now is that people are crazy because there's a pandemic. And something that, that someone said to me at the beginning of the pandemic, which I've sort of thought a lot about since, was he noted that there's no literature of the 1918 flu. It's really weird. It just kind of disappears. There's all these writers who've lived through, through World War I and they write about it. They all lived through the pandemic too, and none of them write about it. Right. It's just, it's, it's 
it doesn't even show up really in fiction until like the 30s and 40s as as remembrances not as a thing that's happening live there's not characters who die of it there's it, it's really weird and he said people were ashamed of how they behaved and they didn't want to remember it like the war had had given them either you could blame someone for being betrayed or it had given you experience of courage or intensity and the pandemic was just awful and people forgot about it and i think that it is clear to me that a lot of things that have happened this year are turned up to 11 by the fact that we're all trapped inside and i think you saw this like the thing that sort of drove this home to me was watching all of the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests in country in European countries with no significant black population. Right. It was a really and no police brutality pro- problem that I know about. Right. It was really weird, like watching the city of Amsterdam turn out for this. Right. I mean, like, it's nice that they care. But why? Why this issue? Why now? And why so many people? And. You know, one answer was it was a reason to leave the house, right? It was that you could justify people were so like emotionally overwrought. And I think that that did amplify the intensity of this. It has amplified our crime rate, our violent crime rate, not our, our nonviolent crime rate, but it has amplified a lot of things. And I think that it is amplifying the same thing on the right. People are cooped up. They are frustrated. They are struggling. They feel powerless. Uh, either against a disease or against the government that is forcing them to do stuff they don't want to in order to avoid the disease. And they are, they have a lot of time to spend online getting radical. And, um, and that's not to say, by the way, that the, 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 the George Floyd was not a, a grievance worthy of protesting. It was, I, you know, su- I support the aims of Black Lives Matter at reforming police brutality. I think it's a really big problem in America. Bad policing is a problem in America that needs to be fixed. Um, we have some differences on how, but um, I, I think that we actually need to, to spend more money on policing, not less. Um, but I do think that um, that it is a huge issue. And it, it, it was absolutely like what happened to George Floyd was was terrible and, and should have been protested. Um, but the intensity of it, the, the nationwide, the, the, the looting, the stuff that's been going on in Portland now for how long? Um, like how is how is attacking a federal courthouse every night, right? Making making brutality stop. It's not. It's it's it, people are very very angry at each other and overwrought, and they have a lot of time to spend stewing about how angry they are and meeting other people who are also angry and talking with the other people about how angry they are. And there's nothing to distract them. There's no like, I'm on the PTA and now we actually need to talk about the curriculum. It's just all rage at politics, and I think that that may end. And that actually may, if that's a weird, hopeful note, like that when this is over, when we're vaccinated, when we're leaving our houses, a lot of the political intensity that has been fueling QAnon and so forth for the last year, it it may start to ebb. But but it wasn't part of the hope, and this is sort of Ross Douthat's dream politic argument, which I'm which I was sympathetic to. I feel like the case has been undermined a bit, but I think my hope for a time was that if people were angry that they had the fact that they had so many online outlets to um, express those grievances without hurting people because it's virtual that that would allow them and certainly twitter i think was a good test case of this that if there wasn't twitter and people had all this pent-up anger would it go somewhere else and that other place would be worse that Twitter actually gives people an alternative 
to actual physical activity in the real world. And if you have a bunch of angry and maybe possibly depressed people, I'd rather them express that online than to spend too much time in the streets. I think what we've realized is that the dream politic can bleed into physical life more easily than we may have expected. Yeah, I think actually um, a uh, research psychologist of my acquaintance noted that would, because I was talking about the fact that there is this weird way in which a lot of what Twitter does and a lot of what even I try not to do this with my writing. Um, but when I was at my angriest at Trump, I was definitely doing this is like, I'm giving people stuff to be mad about that in some way that was what I was selling was I was selling rage to people who wanted to be mad. Um, and that's one reason that I have stepped back my anger. I still write the occasional angry columns about Trump. Everyone's entitled to indulge a little bit, but I try not to do as much of it. Um, and no, I think it, it gives people more reasons to be mad. Like they, they go find strangers who would have done something mildly bad or maybe really bad and would have been appropriately disciplined um, by the justice system or their office or whatever, and instead turn into a national case where we can all two minutes hate them. And like, what are they getting out of participating about this? My, my core theory about this is that rage, right? When you, when you get really mad, you release all these chemicals in your brain that then suppress other emotions like anxiety or fear. And, you know, we're all, especially as we get older and so forth, we're all afraid and lonely and anxious a lot. That's the human condition. Um, we're all locked into our own heads. We worry about death. Uh, we, we worry about, you know, being alone and never being loved as much as we want to be. We worry about all of these things. And, but you can't worry about any of that when you're mad. And so, it becomes so temporarily you can allay all of it by going on the internet and finding some people. And not only that, if you find a community of people who are mad, you can feel not alone. You can feel like you're connected and you're part of this big, wonderful thing. You are, you are fighting the good fight for justice. And the problem is that over the long term, that's actually like a super unhealthy life strategy and it makes you more lonely and more mad and, um, and gives you fewer things, fewer alternatives to it makes you the sort of person who has trouble developing alternatives to going online and getting mad with people. Um, and I said this to him and he said, yeah, it's actually, it, it's remarkable how much it looks like addiction where like you're going after this permanent dopamine high. And every time it starts to ebb, you go back and you, you go to get another hit, uh, this permanent adrenaline high, um, which is basically what stimulant addiction is. And so I have thought about that a lot and it is, it has moderated my own behavior in, in seeking, in seeking people to be mad at. You know what? There are other people out there who are going to do the job. I am not needed. So Megan, you're, you're, you're libertarian-ish, I would yes, say, that's, right? That's I fair. mean, libertarian-ish. So, so I mean, one of the things that, that, you know, if there's a silver lining, if we're looking for them, um, I just, you know, frame you, you guys were talking about, uh, Shadi, you in particular about, you know, the Twitter and, and their, their decisions and things like that. I mean, I, I was, I was happy for one reason that if I, that, that if this keeps going, it, it makes Twitter less, less relevant. Like if they start, you know, like policing speech to a certain extent to such a level and actually it becomes more ideological and not just preventative of, 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 uh, you know, sort of rabble rousing. Um, it just becomes less important. But that, then that gets me thinking about, you know, it's one of the other leitmotifs of this podcast is how, how actually frustrated we are that we, both of us, have to 
partly feel like we have to spend time on Twitter, you know, for, for, uh, for job reasons. And so, you know, is it, is it, is it problematic to, you know, hope from a libertarian, from like a rights perspective, from like a, you know, free speech perspective, perhaps to, to, to hope that, that in fact, or to even assert that, that, that this thing that we've created is bad and impossible for, for democracy to, to, to have. And therefore, you know, to, to be really be gung ho and let's not even get into the, the legalities. I'm sure you're, you're way better versed on it on, uh, whatever section 203 and and the, the implications. Uh, two thirty. See, there you go. Um, uh, of of the of the implications of that. I mean, you know, I, I, that's a, a huge another path that we could go down. But at, at least, sort of on a higher philosophical plane, should we be wishing that 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 the business model for Facebook and Twitter somehow be destroyed? It seems to me like it could be by you know some several strokes of several pens. Um, is that something we should be sort of? I think Facebook for? is actually less vulnerable because Facebook at this point is basically begging to be turned into a common carrier. Um, I think Twitter could not survive having its Section 30, 230 um, stuff pulled. I mean, I think there are a number of ways in which you could make perfectly legal, substantive changes to laws um, that would make Twitter, at, at the very least, have to do a lot more moderation of left-wing people. Um, I mean, you could imagine a law, for example, that said you may not permit any statement about any race of people that you do not allow that you would not allow about some other race of people, which would make a whole bunch of woke discourse about white people suddenly extremely difficult to carry out. Right. Um, That is an amendment they could make. It would be it's factually neutral. Um, but it would make it a less, it would make Twitter a much less attractive place because it would have to start cracking down hard on a lot of its, its sort of most famous and, um, avid users, right? Um, you can pull their section 230, um, and make them moderate everything. And I think that that would just be the, the sheer speed and volume of Twitter would make that extremely difficult. They'd have to shut down, Um, right? I mean, and, and I think they would, they would turn into a different business. Um, yeah. You know, my I have I have kind of joked, but also not joking, that I'm not sure it wouldn't be better if every media company didn't just forbid its employees to tweet. Um, I think it's, and I'm I'm just as bad an offender as anyone else. It's just it sucks up all of our time, and most of it is pretty unproductive. But also, there's enough of it that's productive that you have to be on it. Um, and there's this performative aspect that then ends up being alienating a lot of readers who can see who can see look i'm an opinion columnist people know what i think but if you're going to be a straight news reporter it's a problem if your conservative readers get a pretty good idea that you don't like them um in you know it, it hurts your sourcing it hurts but it also hurts like broader it hurts institutions more broadly right if if a bunch of people at an at an outlet are kind of you can see that where their sympathies lie, then people who have the other sympathies may not want to talk to your outlet. Right. And so I think that's not the only explanation. Like Donald Trump has been very unhelpful in his talk about, about the media and quite ridiculous and unfair and people way overblow the critiques. The media does not print things that aren't true. Um, they go to a pretty lengthy, you know, great lengths not to to print things that aren't true, um, which is not what a lot of his supporters believe, thanks to Donald Trump. Um, and lots of other people, I should say, on the right. But, um, you know, I, I, I think 
we might be better off if Twitter didn't exist, right? But, and I think that, yeah, Republicans might be able to not make it exist or not make it exist in this form. Um, they could mess with it enough that they would, they would anger a lot of their own communities and drive those people off to somewhere where they could talk the way they want to do with their, you know, with their friends and make joking, make jokes about white people and, and all the rest of it, which I think are like ultimately basically harmless. And I'm very irritated by conservatives who complain about this constantly. Like, why do you want to say the N word, dude? What, what is it about the word that, that you're just dying to say it? It just makes you crazy. Someone is that else a is thing? allowed to and you can't. Oh my God! Why can they say it and I can't? Because you're but you white. Know, you actually know real life conservatives oh that oh, feel yeah. very passionately oh, yeah. about people this. Write, people write me about this every time I write about it. Like, why can't you say it? I don't know. Why can't someone else insult insult your mother, even if you were saying the same thing to your brother the other day? Like you just can't. Like you're a grown up. This shouldn't be that hard. Um, <laughs> the, the more I learn about people, the more I feel like they're really odd. Like yes. uh, in a collective <laughs> sense, and this is actually what's starting to worry me too, as someone who's such an outspoken proponent of democracy as the best available form of government, I find myself not liking people more and more or the idea of people. And of course, the name of our podcast is meant to be taken ironically. Sometimes people will say on Twitter, wait, why are you guys saying X, Y, or Z? Don't you believe in the wisdom of crowds? <laughs> I mean, obviously, so, we we don't really. You should you should still like people. They're, they're not any worse than they used to be. Okay, what, but What's one, happened is that the bad hmm. parts have just become temporarily more salient. Okay, one exception to this, and I'd be curious what you have to say about it, is the fact that 48% of Republicans, or whatever the number is, um, have said to pollsters that, or sorry, survey people or whatever they're called, <laughs> that they support the storming of the Capitol. I mean, it's one thing to believe in crazy conspiracies or some dude named Q. And I, you know, I don't have huge issues with, I mean, coming, being originally from a region where conspiracy, th conspiracy theories are even, are much more creative than anything QAnon could come up with. Like a lot of creativity goes into conspiracy theorizing in Egypt, for example. So I respect the craft, but this is different. <laughs> I mean, this is 48% of people who apparently believe that an armed insurrection against the government can be justified. Or maybe I'm misunderstanding what those survey results are saying. You know, like, I'm not defending it, obviously. I think they're hideously, hideously wrong. But, like, what does that mean? Like, how – that's a lot of people. So people it's not have just – a lot of – people have a lot of weird symbolic beliefs, right? I mean, so – But is that a weird symbolic belief? That seems to be yeah. a very foundational objection to so, the yes, system. So, yes, I think one thing that, that the last four years have definitely – last eight years to some extent, but really the last four years have really revealed to me is the extent is how few people actually believe any of the stuff that they say normatively. And as someone who really does actually believe it and has had, and knows this because I've been forced to stick to stuff where like, it's not helpful to my side. Um, most people just don't. It's, it's, it's performative and instrumental and it's a lot more tribal than I think I acknowledge. And certainly like all conservatives are now aware of this. We thought we had, you know, I'm I'm like a right leaning libertarian. We I, I thought we had a, a bunch of principles about like limited government and so forth. No, we didn't have that. We had those principles. The voters did not have those principles, right? Um, and the I think it's true on the Democratic side. I mean, you had 72 percent of Democrats thought that, that Russia had altered the vote tallies. 
to elect Donald Trump president that he actually had not been elected president, right? Now, are they going to storm the Capitol? No. They thought it was, it's a weird, it's a weird symbolic belief that is about, is really about kind of protecting yourself from having to condemn your own side, right? Is, and there's also this other thing of, and I said, this is going to be uncharitable, but we all do, I will say this about Iraq, right? It took me a long time to realize how wrong I'd been about Iraq. And the real reason was that it would have been, it was, I was really invested in it, right? I had been part of the war blogging community. It was a constituent part of my identity. It was who my friends were saying I was wrong, was personally embarrassing, meant breaking social ties with people who would be upset with me and so forth. So it took a long time. And you can throw up also in that situation, you can throw up all sorts of psychological defenses as to why you actually weren't wrong, right? And that is something that I think I see on the right right now, where, I mean, for five years, because, you know, I was one of the early Never Trump people. Um, and for five years, we have been saying, do not elect this man. It is going to end in tears. There is, this is just not going to end well. He is unstable. He's a narcissist. He has, is in, extraordinarily thin skinned and has impulse compo- control problems and does not respect the institution or the government. And he is ultimately going to damage the party as well as the country. And if you, if, if you've been yelling at me that I'm just an out of touch elite who doesn't really understand where real America is and doesn't understand like where the future is. And if you have been, there's a kind of saying like that I, I will tone it down slightly, but don't go full frontal jerk on the internet that I learned as a blogger <laughs> early on, because once you've gone full frontal jerk, it's so hard to take it back, right? You're just like, ah, but not only, whereas if you've been like, I think you're wrong, but I respect you or whatever, it's a lot easier to be like, oh, well, it turns out, in fact, I was wrong. Um, and so I think that walk back is going to take a long time. It's not going to happen instantly. So, you, you know, here, here's the thing though. I, 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 I'm tempted to, because I think, I think all of these things are true, but it's, it's, it's in assuming that you said something again in this in this last uh, um, uh, reply. You said you said uh, uh, we thought we had principles, but our voters didn't. You know, our our base didn't. I, I saw. Well, they uh, definitely didn't have oh, the principles man. we thought they had. I mean, they would they would obviously like get very angry if I said they don't have any principles, but they didn't have the kind of principles Those I ones, thought yeah. they had. Well, so I, I'm I'm going to have to blank, and I'm not going to pull out my computer to to figure out. But it was in City Journal. Um, uh, there was an essay about one of these like end of the GOP uh, um, sort of essays. Anyway, I'll put it in the show notes. I, I forget who the author was. Um, but I, it was a, the, the last paragraph had something along the lines of, of you know, damning Trump for, in fact, um, misleading uh, a bunch of people who had legitimate grievances and leading them down a blind alley um, and that was the sort of the note that that uh, she ended on, and so I my 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 immediate impulses. And this goes back to to Shadi's, you know, the question about like the symbolic violence and these symbolic beliefs and and the rest of this. And I mean, again, granting that that it can both be true that people don't and do take these things seriously. I do think it's wrong to say that that people didn't know voters, Trump voters, didn't know what they were getting with Trump. And this is not to say that that Trump doesn't cast a spell like a demagogue spell and is able to with his lying and, and the rest of this like to to shape reality in a in a particularly toxic and accelerated way but people voted for a fuck you here mm-hmm. they voted for a big 
big, big fuck you. He is the biggest middle finger mm-hmm. that was that was available. <laughs> senses and guess what? And 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 guess what? You know what? And this is how I interpret the storming of of uh, of the Capitol. In fact, it's not something like went like crazy. It was the institutions are not responsive to us. The elites are completely corrupt. Uh, the Democrats are beyond repair, and we're going to go in there and hogtie uh, uh, Nancy and Chuck, and maybe even even uh, the cuck Pence, and um, you know just shame them. I think ultimately shame. they it were was, talking it about was hanging th- Mike Pence. I'm not sure it wouldn't have <sighs> happened if they could have found him. Well, okay, fair enough. Even more so than like, do you know what I mean? Though it's 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 not it's not. And and I I take your point. It may be all this craziness of being cooped up and the the political all of it. I mean, it's just like it's the perfect storm in so many ways to have this president at this crisis when we're all you know feeling stir crazy and 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 it it all adds up to this. I just think it's wrong to say that 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 you know people were misled by Trump. And now again, maybe to your point, like uh, to Tim Carney's point about giving people the opportunity to repent and how the important that is. But at the same time, you know, as I look at what we're looking at, and I mean, there's there's the one thing that's the politics of it, but then there's the sort of lesser insignificant part of us scribblers and analysts. Now, again, you and Shadi have bigger platforms, so you have you maybe there's more responsibility on you to 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 like to try and 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 gesture at the political way. But for me, I feel like like if I'm trying to call it as it is, I think it's a mistake to to say that that this was all you know, again, this is all. It goes back to the sort of Ross Douthat sort of uh, 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 dream politics stuff. It's it's real. It was a real sense of, of of desire to do what Trump did, and in many ways, it culminated in the wishes. I think of a lot of these people. Is that so wrong? So I think that's not wrong. Um, there definitely was an urge to, you know, if if I can't have what I want, I'm going to burn it all down, and that's something that. There's a little bit about a lot of places in America right now. Um, but I will say, look, you can, you can think of this, there being like trenches of Trump voters and the, the smallest and most radical trench is the, the people, the kind of people who actually go to Washington, attend a demonstration planning that they're going to storm the Capitol, right? And that's like a really tiny number of people. And then the next trench is the people who just went to the demonstration. And then the next tranche is the people who didn't go to the demonstration, but because they were too lazy, but think like damn straight. And then the next tranche is the people who didn't go to the demonstration. Um, and just kind of think like, why is this such a, why are elites making such a big deal out of this? And then there's a tranche that's horrified by this, but doesn't think Trump is at fault. Um, and the, the conversation I've been having with the last two tran, and, you know, and then there's a tranche that is actually horrified by this, does think it's tran- uh, Trump's fault. And interestingly, seems to be mostly ladies in my experience. Like, I've, I've been hearing from a lot of ladies who are like, oh, wow. Um, I actually had one of my, my, my followers, like, apologize to me. She was like, you were right. Um, and, you know, um, a lot of my followers have not, to be clear, they still think that I am completely incorrect. So let's represent their view too. Um, but that those two groups um, didn't think it was going to go this far, right? Would never have approved it if they had. They just didn't think it would. And, and many of them still think that it's it's not his fault. 
um, that this was just something that happened. And in fairness, QAnon does seem to be somewhat in, like, I'm not sure QAnon wouldn't have happened if Donald Trump had lost in 2016, right? There is like, there is a craziness going on there. That's kind of weird psychological games that someone seems to have mastered. Um, But so I, I think that there's also that um, I've been trying to explain for the whole time, like why this stuff matters. And it's really hard to explain you know, it's really easy to explain if you don't care whether the person you're explaining it to listens to you, right? It's really easy to be like, oh, that you even have to ask, right? But I, you know, these are people who have been reading me for 20 years in some cases, and like, I have to explain it to them. I have to account for all of the hypocrisy about, um, you know, allowing I have to explain to them, and, and you can say you shouldn't have to explain that. Well, I do. I have to explain why it is worse for a mob to storm the Capitol than for a mob to burn down a bunch of businesses in Minneapolis, right? Because a lot of these people have businesses, and that's someone's livelihood. And now I was saying that's a big deal, too. To be clear, I think elites have been legitimating elites at this summer playing at legitimating mob violence. We just got a really good demonstration of why you never, ever do that, no matter how good the cause you think, right? Like, never, 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 never. Um, but again, not saying they're equivalent, this is worse, but that is where it can go, which is why you stop it way early. Um, but I have to make those explanations. And one of the things that was hardest to explain was like, Trump would play all these games with norms, right? And to go back to that concept of building a wall around the Torah, right? There's all this stuff. There's all these norms in Washington that are building a wall around the Torah. They're like, you can't even get close to questioning an election. And one problem is that, in fact, those norms have been weakening on both sides, which is why the Stacey Abrams stuff, which is why Hillary Clinton got away with making a crack about how Trump wasn't the legitimate president. Not okay. Again, not as bad, but not okay. Um, But another thing is that, like, if you're not inside, it's just really hard to explain in the same way that it's really hard to explain like internal dynamics to your family. Like, well, why can't you just ask your mom to do that? Like, no, are you crazy? <laughs> like, because the world would blow up if I did that, right? And it's really hard to explain to outsiders because it's, you just, you learn it through osmosis and everyone in the family knows it and no one outside does. And like, that's the stuff that he was transgressing. And there was really good reason for that stuff. That was the the wall that you didn't cross. So you could, couldn't get close to mobs in the streets. So that you couldn't get close to all of this stuff. And, but it was so hard. So I don't think they understood what, what elite saw was correct, which was that he was doing five alarm fire type stuff. But the problem was a lot of the stuff he was doing was actually like, it was, it was totally invisible if you weren't already part of the culture and didn't understand why it was really, really, really important for people who are close to power, not to ever talk that way. You know, what just came to mind right now? Um, it's a little bit of a digression, but it's just something that I literally just thought about now. So you brought up the example in, in Jewish law. And I thought about something which we would hear in Sunday school. And this is for more um, conservative Muslim types. Um, uh-huh. There's this, um, I guess it's a prophetic saying of some sort um, that if a uh, uh, a man, if if a, I guess it would be a girl or a, if a man and a woman are alone in the room, in a room, the third is the devil. And um, I guess, <laughs> I guess the relevance there is that like, 
you can probably be alone in a room with a member of the opposite sex like a lot of the time and not end up having sex with them. But there's probably like the five to ten percent of times when you're alone in a room with someone of the opposite sex five where you will have sex Jackie. with them. <laughs> Boy, you must be busy. <laughs> Shadi, we have to have Mike Pence on the on the podcast next. Anyway, go on. So, you know, we probably thought when we were young, like, this is so unreasonable. And I think it is. I mean, I'm not like, that's, this is not my position. And, you know, I think it's a very weird way to approach your life. And Mike Pence does seem to be, it's not just Muslims. Mike Pence seems to observe this approach as well. He's very careful mm-hmm. about Catholics women. call it avoiding near occasions of sin. Oh, great. So, okay. It's a ecumenical thing. That's very encouraging. So, um, but you know, we thought this was unreasonable. I think there's, you know, and I still think it's unreasonable, but if you have this, I don't know where I'm going here, but, but if you have this approach that you want to prevent any chance of something happening, you do kind of build the wall and you take a lot of precautions. And that's why norms are important, right? And as someone who's been critical of, of the Democrats' obsession with norms. And sometimes, you know, it's called norm core because, you know, there, there's this group of centrist folks that think that norms are everything. And I still think that there is a problem of making politics more about norms than about policies that actually affect people's lives. But I do think I, I you know, but norms do matter to some extent anyway. Um, that, uh, I, I guess I was, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I'll just, I just to, to build on that a little bit though, again, just to, to bring it maybe a little full circle. It's, it's the reason I'm, I'm still, yeah, again, of course, norms matter and they're, they're a thing, but it just, they become a lot easier to trample on when you don't have a sense of unity. And this is, again, gets back to my, 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 my thing about, I, I do think Americans in particular identify themselves as small D Democrats as part of their core identity. And I think the core identity of small D democracy is not enough of a glue for anything. It is, it is a functional thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, but you need something else. And it's, it's, it's both this, the fact that, that we've had such, you know, I think Megan, you've described it really well across this episode. This, you know, the, the, well, this lack of, 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 of trust and faith, this kind of abuse by elites, this kind of fact that elites have not been able to earn the trust of, of, um, you know, at least sometimes half of the country, but certainly not the whole country. Um, and, and, and we're reaping, we're reaping that in many ways. So, I mean, I'm, I am still critical of like norm core, like just on its own, because I don't think it's enough. I, I just don't. And I think that, so something that I was just thinking about when, when Shadi was talking, um, is that one thing that strikes me as one of the reasons it was so hard to communicate why it was bad that, that Trump was violating all these norms, um, was that, his voters associated this with kind of woke policing and the woke policing is itself. I mean, so, um, you know, when I was working in a construction trailer and before that, before I went to business school, I worked with in a lot of blue collar environments, with a lot of cable guys and so forth. And like one thing that really sticks with me is how much is that they talked about race so differently from the way we did. First of all, these were actually in general, much more diverse workplaces. Um, and second of all, they had a, comfort with now i don't say that that members of minority groups were more comfortable in these workplaces i have no idea i was not one of them but the culture of how you talked about things like race and gender was just much more like frank and comfortable like i, I still remember being in a construction trailer and i had a black coworker and a white coworker, and she was dating a dominican guy 
and she uh, the the black coworker was trying to lose weight and she said but i can't lose too much and i was like why why you know i'm i'm from up, upper west side you can never be too rich or too thin and i said why and my white coworker turned around and she's like oh he's dominican dominicans don't like that and i was just like i was like cringing i was like <laughs> like I'm like sliding into my chair, like you can't say that, right? And you would never say that. I mean, first of all, forget like I would get fired, but it would just never occur to me to say something like that. Like the horror of just having that said in my presence. My but my black coworker is like nodding, he's like yeah, they don't like. I have no idea whether this is true. I'm just like just these. It was their opinion. I don't want to like seem like I'm perpetuating stereotypes. I'm just repeating that like these kinds of conversations would never, ever, ever, ever happen. In a, in, a, in a professional workplace, we have this very elaborate code. And that code is about never accidentally giving offense, right? So you have all of these huge walls built up around things you can say and things you can't, because so that you can't even get close to saying something that might be offensive, right? And there are virtues to that. Like we're, we're trying to avoid, you know, you're, we're trying to avoid hurting people's feelings. We're trying to avoid, you know, like being part of systemic racism. Um, we're trying to avoid stuff that's bad. But if you have not been socialized, and again, this is the sort of thing you absorb through osmosis, you absorb it in your college classes and your high school classes. And by the time you get into the workplace, you've, you've been pretty well had it hammered into you. But if you haven't, it just seems like this incredibly like, esoteric Byzantine set of rules that are kind of like all those weird Victorian rules about silverware that are just there for the middle class to like keep other people out. Um, and that's not really the purpose, but that's what it looks like to them. And so I think, and, and so they already resented having these kind of checks on what they could say. They resented politicians, their Republican politicians giving in to those checks on what they could say. And then Donald Trump refused. And when people were like, and so some of it really was that there just actually is, there are cultural differences between the working class and the upper middle class about how you can talk about hot button topics. Um, and, but part of it is that even the stuff that wasn't about that, the stuff that was just about attacking democratic norms and so forth, right? When we said a president cannot talk about the media that way. Right. Because that's how authoritarians get started right before they start shutting down, you know, the newspapers or co-opting them or whatever. And that's bad. It's, it, it makes it, your life will be worse if you let him talk this way. Right. It all seemed like it was of a piece and that that was a big problem in communicating why this wasn't just some elaborate etiquette that was designed. You know, we're like retroactively making up rules to trap Donald Trump and also wasn't some weird, just some weird fetish that the, the upper middle class had about n not ever saying anything directly. Well, well, so we, <laughs> let's maybe sort of try. No, I, I don't mean, know. Let's, maybe this is completely crazy, and I'm going to totally cancel the minute this plays. But no, I don't think so at all. I mean, I, I think there's there's just there's there's a ton there. Um, I we've been going for we've been going for 90 minutes. I don't know. Let's try and like wind it up on something like maybe forward looking and how we how we get out of this. Demir, I mean, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like 90 minutes. I disagree with you. Why are you why are you oppressing me, Demir? <laughs> Time oppresses us all. I think it's the one thing, the one thing that's the, the only truth. And right? Megan, hopefully you'll be able to hang out with us more like in the after times. But Oh um, my gosh, yes, one please. Of, well, so one, come yeah, drink it our backyard now. We have a, a backyard. We are like we uh, we have a, a big green egg, we barbecue stuff. 
We should do that. But like, I was going to say like our group, like our group of friends, um, Demir and I, like we make fun of each other's, I, I don't want to say too much about how we make fun of each other, but I'll just say <laughs> they make fun of Islam and they make fun of me for being Muslim. And I find it really endearing. Oh, that's so that's what friends for are for making fun of each other's I don't, um, religion. So after, in the context, in the context of how of how this conversation's been going about like you know people wanting to say the n word, I feel like now people have a really weird idea about what our friend group is like, Shadi, and it's, it's in fact is not not exactly correct. Um, but anyway, I don't know. So, I, like, you know, Megan, you've also you know you're, 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 you one of your your beats is is sort of healthcare blogging and things like that. How optimistic are you that 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 you know we come out of this and it's a dark period as you alluded to uh, that you know, uh, we all sort of want to forget as normalcy comes back. Are you, are you, are you normalcy optimistic going forward? Um, in some ways, right. I think normal is never going to be quite the same again. In some ways that in good ways, right. I think the biomedical industry, what has happened in, in, in biomedical research and the biomedical industry is just remarkable. A year ago, like we didn't even really know that this virus existed, right. And we have two, and it looks like Johnson and Johnson. I just saw it flash up in my email, so I don't know what the results are. But it looks like Johnson and Johnson may have uh, announced their results. Um, so with, of the third, you know, that we've got two great vaccines that are approved in the U.S. We've got a third that isn't approved here and might not be, but is still, you know, pretty decent. We've got a couple from Russia that and China that are more iffy, and we've got Johnson and Johnson coming. Like this is a miracle. We just lived through a human miracle and we should just, we should wake up every morning and be like, thank you, God, for letting me live now and not in 1918. Right? Just amazing. Um, I'm, I wonder about cities. You know, I, I wonder about what the future of a place like New York or San Francisco is because there were these big agglomeration effects and the agglomeration effects kind of got challenged for a year and some people have moved and some of those moves are probably going to be pretty permanent like you know my husband has a colleague who um who moved to like quite a while away in virginia is he going to come in every day all of those things those decisions aren't easily unwound and there were a fair number of those at least among kind of professional office places um there are companies that are just saying you can live anywhere you may have to take a pay cut but you can go anywhere you want and people are moving back to be close to family so that their mom can take care of their kids or whatever and these are all big changes that i'm not sure will unwind i think new york and san francisco might end up looking quite different at the end of this not necessarily all in a bad way um i think immigration law is likely to be i mean one of the most interesting questions to me is does does what does biden do about immigration well, COVID is still endemic in poor countries, right? Do are 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 you just going to say throw open the borders while there's a pandemic raging on the south of the border and let people in? If Mexico hasn't vaccinated as fast as we have, I think these are really big questions. Um, but I also think that a lot of stuff will be normal or even super normal in ways we're not expecting, like. I kind of wonder if people aren't going to be really, really, really into traveling and seeing each other in person in a way that they weren't before. Maybe not. Maybe we'll like all go out for the first three days. We'll see everyone. We'll be like this. Oh, yeah. You know what? I really kind of just liked being on Zoom and go back in. 
But um, I'm like the next best thing to a hermit and I'm stir crazy. And like, I, I didn't even realize it until the first time I like worked up my courage to have people over in the backyard. And my husband came in and he was like, Oh my God, what happened to you? You're like a different person because I had Tyler Cowan, the economist for lunch. Um, and so we made a real effort to, you know, we winterized our back, our back patio so that we could have people outside all year. Um, because it's really important to see people to me. And I think that after this, I'm going to be going to more dinners and, and doing stuff. But at the same time, um, you know, so I think, I think a lot of it's just going to be, you'll look around in a year and a half and there'll be some bars missing and you'll be sad about that. There'll be restaurants that closed and so forth. But it'll be kind of like the financial crisis where you don't feel like, uh, I mean, some people obviously always do feel like my life changed at that moment and I'll never get back what I had on, on, on the previous side. But for a lot of people, I suspect they're going to look around and be like, wow, my life is really just very much as it was in 2018. Well, I think Demir is an important test case for the socializing thesis because if Demir wants to see people this summer after he gets vaccinated, that will be a surprise to me. So I'm going to be waiting <laughs> to see how Demir feels about groups of people and being around them before I make any final judgments. I feel like the canary, the proverbial canary. Uh, so just keep keep looking. I, the impression if, uh, I've gotten from the podcast is that both of you just like go out and party all the time with your friends, and I've like I've been so, I've been I've been feeling like I'm old and I'm I'm jealous. You're like having all these wonderful gatherings. We do and, we do socialize, but I think Demir only likes seven people. <laughs> but um, here, I think the best case scenario is that these twenties, I guess that's a decade that we're sort of entering that. It becomes the Roaring Twenties, the way the previous Twenties were after the Spanish after the Spanish flu, where there's kind of this pent up economic energy. And you know, I saw there's been some interesting articles about how Americans have saved so much money, and that's actually what's driving the odd success of the stock market. That's confounded a lot of people is that if you just do the numbers, there is a there's just like a lot more money. And that, that, um, at least on the aggregate level, obviously there's a big chunk of the population that has not benefited from this, but that, um, that kind of pent up economic energy, we'll see how that's expressed in terms of, you know, supercharging the economy over the next few years. And I guess the social equivalent of that is that all this pent up social energy will mean that this summer will be the great party summer of Washington, D.C. and New York City. I mean, I'll be very interested to see some people have actually, you know, I've made that claim that they think that's what this summer will be. We'll have to wait and see. But um, it's also do you already just very- know what the first thing you'll do when you get after you like, because you have to wait, I think it's 10 days for the shots to take effect. But, you know, after you get your second shot, 10 days, what's, do you know what the first thing you'll do is? Um, <laughs> I feel like this is a trick question. <laughs> no, I'm just like, I've already started thinking about it. I don't know the answer. I mean, I have a lot of like, there's a, there's a long list. I've like what are some examples of things that, uh, things that we, cause I feel like, you know, I've, I've cut my hair. I mean, I have to wear a mask when I go to the, my haircutting person. What is a haircutting person called? Barber. No. A barber. Or a hairdresser. Oh, hairdresser. Hairdresser. <laughs> hairdresser. hairdresser or barber. Pick it. It's a gender, okay, but it's a gender uh, category. I don't think women can be barbers, man. 
A barber is like a male, a male owned. My all husband right, just calls right. his this is... his hair guy, but I don't know what hair guy. Like. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, uh, wait. What? Yeah. Well, anyway, wait, we do I, have to. I, I, so I mean, um, <laughs> it does turn out that uh, it's a long story, but one of the reasons I have to get off fairly soon is because there's a dinner reservation. So I, I'm in rural Virginia. <laughs> I don't want to go into details about what this dinner. You become adventure. a gentleman farmer. That'll be the big change for the. Well, the, I'm literally the in a, I'm literally in a cabin right now in the middle of nowhere, and so much so in the middle of nowhere that in trying to look for delivery options to the place that I'm in now, the only options were Subway, Dunkin' Donuts, and maybe another place. Like that's I'm literally just the, the idea of like just a twelve pack of Dunkin' Donuts for dinner. <laughs> But also I've realized like th- there are parts of this country that, I mean, it's weird. I've lived in DC for quite a while. I never would take, uh, would rent a car with people and explore the more rural parts of Virginia. So I guess I'm 90 minutes away from DC right now. And one thing that I want to do going forward is just, you know, check out what this Virginia place is all about. And apparently there's also a Western Virginia that I've heard about. <laughs> It's called West Virginia. Yeah. yeah. Seceded, yeah. seceded from the state and everything during the Civil War. Um, All right, Shadi, okay. go get yourself dinner. Yeah. Megan, this <laughs> yeah, was, this was awesome. Fun. Thank you so Thanks much, Megan. Thanks for having me, guys. It was great to have you. Yeah, sure. I was into a marketing spiel at the end. Wait, Demir, do we have to do that? Because we forgot to do that in the beginning. No. no. Okay. Yeah, everyone everyone should subscribe to their podcast and their Patreon. <laughs> and if you don't, you are you are losing an opportunity to get in the ground floor of two of the ground most floor. important American thinkers of their generation. So Oh wow. Um, that was lovely yeah. and you very wanna flattering. Buy, you want to buy on the dip on that. <laughs> get in early. Get Say in early. you funded them way back then and yeah. then demand favors. Yeah, it favors exactly exactly <laughs> oh wow this is fun right, Megan, we really enjoyed this this is great and hopefully hopefully next time soon uh we can actually record in person uh, i would love uh, that next time you're on that'd be so much so much even better take great. care guys happy pandemic okay. bye Megan. Bye. bye everyone bye Thanks. bye <laughs>